two passages. The first one's going to be from Genesis chapter 6, and it'll be Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through to 8, and then we'll go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. So we'll start at Genesis chapter 6. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 first. It's pretty easy to find. It's on the fourth page. <coughs> and it, oh, what was the reading again? One to eight, yep, yeah, okay. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the earth, uh, from the face of the earth, men and animals and, the cre and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And now we'll head over to one Peter. Uh, chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 18 to 22. <clears throat> for Christ who died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good consciousness towards God, of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for giving us your word, and we pray now that you would help us to focus uh, not on things that are around us, but focus on what you're saying to us, and that by your spirit that uh, you would be informing our minds and transforming our hearts that we would be men and women who live faithfully for you uh, in the, this world which has fallen, and that we would do so until we meet you again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In sport, it's often the case that the player is not only battling against their opponent, but is also battling against their own um, emotions and their own anxieties. Uh, you've probably seen tennis matches where a, an unseeded player is, looks like they're about to clinch uh, a great upset, to clinch the, the victory of their career, 
and uh, they get so close to, uh, uh, to, to, to breaking through, and, but they can't close the match because they suddenly become overcome with their fears and their anxieties and they fall apart right towards the very end. They crumble. But imagine if they knew in advance that they were going to win uh, the match, not because of some sort of match-fixing arrangement, but because of some sort of supernatural revelation that uh, they had knowledge that they would win and that all that they needed to do was just to keep on playing as they have been, keep on playing as they know that they should play, and to do so uh, without any worry whatsoever about the outcome uh, because the outcome had been predetermined. Now, uh, that would make a difference, wouldn't it? Uh, they would probably not crumble uh, right at, the, uh, at match point, uh, but it would certainly take a lot of the fun out of sport if that were the case. Now, in life, we face many uh, battles, uh, relationship battles, uh, family issues, employment issues, um, health issues, and so on and so forth. And there are times when anxiety can overwhelm us and may even cause us to falter. And for us as Christians, uh, there is the added dimension that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we are different from people around us. Uh, we have different priorities. We uh, have different morals uh, because we fundamentally we have different beliefs, different beliefs about God, about man, about this world, about the future. The Christians to whom Peter wrote his letter, they definitely felt that they were different in their world. Uh, in fact, uh, as we've seen in 1 Peter, Peter describes them as being aliens and strangers uh, in this world. Uh, that they had suffered grief in all kinds of trials and, and difficulties. We've already seen that they were falsely accused of doing wrong when in fact they had done right. And in chapter 4, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks' time, we're told that uh, people would heap abuse on them uh, because they, they just wouldn't join in with ungodly behaviour, that uh, they wouldn't go out getting drunk and being sexually immoral and doing all of the stuff of the world. And because of that, people see their example and they feel guilty and so they try to bring shame uh, on the Christians. Now, there's great blessings in being a Christian, but it's not always easy to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what that's like, don't you? Because there are times when you feel that your, your beliefs are not being... Uh, properly respected, that uh, you may uh, even be sidelined because of your beliefs uh, or, or your morality, uh, that you take a different position uh, and you live differently to um, others. And at the very least, we can sometimes we can feel like we're kind of in the, on the outer. We don't kind of fit in. And it's in situations like that where it's quite uh, tempting and, and possible for us to, to lose, lose our nerve and to, to give in to the peer pressure, or at least to go silent, become all quiet 
about what we actually hold uh, dear. And so, therefore, how do we stay firm as followers of Jesus through these kind of trials and temptations in life? Now, in today's passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through to 22, uh, what Peter does here is he, he draws us back to two of the absolute essentials of, of Christian faith. And that is, he draws us back to Christ's death for us and secondly, to the victory of Christ's resurrection. And so we're going to talk about that. Firstly, chat about uh, the death of Christ. And in regards to the death of Jesus, Peter, throughout 1 Peter, has already shown us that uh, Christ's example of how he responded to, uh, to suffering and indeed to, to his, his death, that Christ's example is an example for us. Uh, it's an example for us to, to respond rightly when uh, people treat us poorly that uh, Christ was humble. So that when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate, he didn't uh, fight back. Uh, instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Uh, and when he was, uh, uh, when he was uh, mocked and cursed, he, didn't, he responded by blessing. He prayed for the people uh, who crucified him uh, that God would forgive them. But his death was far more than merely an example of humility. And our passage today opens in verse 18 with uh, what I think are words which, uh, which are so good that we should all commit them to memory. Have a look at verse 18. In verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, it's kind of the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Um, good, good verses to commit to memory, folks. Put them on a card, memorize them. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now, I was having a conversation about a week or so ago with uh, two people who are non-Christians. And one of them, and they were, one of them was actually quite honest and quite, um, I, I think, was, was seeking, actually, and it's great to be able to follow that through. But uh, this person asked me, did I know of anybody who could say with certainty that they would go to heaven uh, when they die? Now, do you reckon I know anybody in that category? I reckon I might be looking at a few of them. Would that be right? Because it's not about us, is it? It's not about how good we are. It's not about what we've done. Uh, Peter says here that we have been brought back to God. Now, what does that imply? Well, that implies if, you've, if you need to be brought back to God, then that implies that you were once far away from God, that you were once disconnected from God, that you were out of relationship with God. And here uh, in this verse... The implication is that that is, was because of our sin. But sin has been dealt with. For, and literally this translates as, the one righteous man has died for the unrighteous men. That the one died for many. That the righteous has died 
for the unrighteous, and that, of course, is us. We are the unrighteous. Notice that Peter says that, it, that this was a once and for all payment. Christ died for sins once for all. That is, it's never to be repeated. There's no need for it to be repeated. There's no need for it to be added to. Uh, it is complete. It is sufficient. For the one who has died for sin is described by Peter as being Christ. That is God's son. And because of who he is, it means that his sacrifice is of infinite value. Uh, sufficient value. More than sufficient value to pay for all of our sin. So on the day of judgment, <clears throat> you know, let's say, hypothetically, God, you front up to God and God uh, says, look, um, I'm just checking out your record here and it says that my son has paid for your sin. Uh, he's paid for 95% of your sin. There's still 5% outstanding. What are you going to say about that? That's not going to happen, is it? Because the job's been done. It's complete payment. Christ died for sins once and for all. No one has to keep on dying to pay for your sin. There's nothing that is insufficient. And so therefore, we can actually be confident on that day and that Christ died for sins once and for all. What did he cry out on the cross? He cried out, it is finished. It's complete. So, therefore, not only does Christ's death help us to respond humbly in the context of suffering, but it also gives us this confidence regarding our eternal future. And I, by the way, had the opportunity to explain to that, um, those two people why we can have that confidence. And they took with them a copy of Luke's Gospel after that, which was great. But the death of Christ for us cannot be separated from his victory in his resurrection. And this is what Peter moves on to talk about now. And I want to just pause and say that uh, the, the verses which follow in this passage, from the second part of verse 18 through to verse 22, uh, these verses are amongst, uh, I think, the most difficult uh, verses uh, in the whole of the New Testament in fact, let you know a secret. I, was, I hadn't read, read ahead in advance and I was preparing a Bible study on this uh, a couple of weeks ago and I thought I'll just allocate two hours to prepare this Bible study. Then I looked at the passage and I thought, oh my goodness, these, this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament, uh, one of them. Let me read them again for you. Pick it up at verse 18, second part. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, what do you make of that? There's a few issues there, isn't there? Any questions that come to your mind as you look at that passage? I mean, the things that come to my mind are, well, you know, who are these spirits in prison? And um, 
when did Christ preach to them? Uh, and for that matter, what did he preach to them? And why would he preach to them? There's a few questions there. Not to mention the stuff about baptism uh, that he goes on to talk about. Now, I take it that Peter's readers would have, <clears throat> would have understood what he was saying because they uh, would have known of uh, other things which they've been taught that have other information that we don't have uh, in our hands. And that's, uh, that's the, one of the issues with interpreting the Bible, isn't it? We're looking at um, <clears throat> uh, documents that were written between 2,000, say 3,000 years ago and uh, we've got to try to understand what they meant in their context, what the original readers understood and then think it through in terms of our context. Imagine if someone in 2,000 years from now picked up a copy of our bulletin that they'd found at, at a garbage tip and trying to understand it, you know, get away. What does that mean? You know, why did they all leave? Where did they go to? That sort of thing. But this is all we have uh, with respect to... Um, uh, to one Peter. So how therefore should we understand it? Well, there are a, there's a multitude of um, interpretations that uh, people have uh, suggested for this passage. And what I want to do is I just want to uh, talk about the three main possibilities and really distill those interpretations down to the, the most basic level uh, so we're not overwhelmed with that. All of them involve uh, the people uh, or those who were around at the time of Noah. Now, the first option, uh, some people think that what it means is that after Jesus died, that he went to hell and that there he preached to the spirits of people who were around at the time of Noah and who perished uh, as unbelievers in the flood or they, they all perished as unbelievers in the flood except for Noah and his family so it's Jesus after he's died goes to hell and he preaches to these people to their spirits in hell I, I, I think it's hard to understand why Jesus would do that because given that there is no second chance uh, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man uh, shows us that, for example, uh, that we need to turn to God before we die, not after we die. There is no such thing as purgatory. And so uh, I don't think that that, uh, that, that particular option doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't win me over. Um, option two, <clears throat> others say that the, the spirits in prison may refer not to humans, but rather to fallen angels. And you'll notice from the passage that uh, Lachlan read to us from Genesis 6 earlier on, that there were those who were described as being the sons of God who uh, married the, the daughters of, of men, and that they are uh, become the, the Nephilim. It's talked about in other parts we looked at that in Joshua uh, last year but they are connected with the the vast rejection of God that took place at the at the pre-flood period uh, at that time so that the, the view is that after his death and perhaps even um, after his resurrection as Jesus uh, ascends to go to be with God the Father in heaven 
that Jesus also went and preached to them, to these spirits of uh, these fallen angelic beings who were uh, uh, judged at the time of uh, the flood. I think this interpretation does seem uh, a little bit more plausible because of other passages in Scripture. So, for example, in your service sheets, I've printed uh, a couple of other passages, just to make it easier for you so you're not flipping around too much. And in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 4, let me read that for you, uh, if you've got it there in front of you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, and so on. Uh, what we see here is that we're told that, that there were fallen angels uh, who may be equated with the, the Nephilim, who have been sent to gloomy dungeons. And that kind of fits in with the language of prison, doesn't it, that Peter uses, that they're, they're held in prison uh, where they are held for the, the day of, of judgment. Um, secondly, another passage is in Jude, chapter, in Jude verse 6, uh, and, uh, which reads as follows. It says that, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home so they're fallen angels these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day and so we see there that there is evidence for angelic beings that are actually uh, held in prison uh, now awaiting judgment and the word which is translated as preached uh, in verse 19, I think when we, when we read that, we automatically think it's preaching the gospel. Um, but it, the word actually means uh, proclaimed. So it can be any proclamation. It doesn't actually give us the content of what was proclaimed. And so, therefore, it may be that Jesus uh, has gone to these spirits and has proclaimed to these spirits not the offer of the gospel, but rather a proclamation of their defeat and his resurrection victory. And so that's the, the second option. Uh, you with me so far? Okay. All right. uh, well, there is a third option. And the third way of understanding these verses... Uh, is it's a bit more like the first option in the sense that the spirits now in prison refer to people uh, who perished uh, in the flood. Uh, however, the question is, when did Christ preach to them? And rather than saying that he preached to them after his death, that uh, in fact that he preached to them at the actual time of Noah. Now, how can that be? Well, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 4, a um, passage I read to you a couple of moments ago, uh, if you have a look at verse 5, or the second part of that, Noah wasn't just a builder of a boat, was he? What was he also? He was not, not just a builder of a boat, he was also a preacher of righteousness. 
And so uh, Noah didn't keep his mouth shut, did he? Uh, what do you think? And I guess we've got to speculate a little bit here, but what do you think that Noah would have been preaching to his neighbours as he's building the boat? I reckon he'd be warning them, don't you? I reckon he'd be saying to them, look, God has spoken to me, that God has revealed to me that there is a great flood coming. You want to know I'm building a boat? Because there is a great flood coming because of sin. So repent. Turn back to God before it's too late. Now, that kind of proclamation is in fact prophecy. We prophesy when we, when we speak to people about when, when we speak God's word to people. And prophecy in the Old Testament is all, it's often a, a prophecy of the, the impending judgment, that there is a judgment to come. Uh, we Christians are prophets because when we preach the gospel, what are we saying to people? We're actually telling them about the future, aren't we? Because we're saying that we have a, a message from God to deliver to you and that message is that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return one day. That there is a... Di- you want to know what the future holds? The future holds judgment. And so get right with God. Now, that's, that's prophecy. And if you flip in your Bibles just back one page to, uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has already told us something about prophecy in the context of prophesying Jesus. But consider what he's saying here in chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. Uh, where he says concerning this salvation the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So it's talking about the, about the suffering and the glories of Jesus. But note how it is that the Old Testament prophets prophesied. It is by the Spirit. By whose Spirit? Does it say the Holy Spirit? No, it says that the Spirit of Christ. So there's Trinitarian stuff in here uh, Im- embedded in this. That the Holy Spirit is also described as being the Spirit of Christ in them and so therefore uh, before the judgment of the flood uh, it's argued that Christ through the spirit preached through Noah uh, the the preacher of righteousness to the people of his day the people who perished in the flood and, and given that in chapter 3 verse 20 in chapter 3 verse 20 uh, God is described as during that time waiting patiently in the days of Noah waiting patiently why would God be waiting patiently well that implies that the preaching uh, that he was patient because he wanted to give people a chance to repent and so that therefore the preaching of Noah was with the view of repentance and that of course is only possible for people who are alive at the time 
although because they've rejected that preaching, are now in the prison of hell. Now, um, some of you may not be using the Pew Bibles. Anyone using a um, NIV on a, on a gadget, on a device? Okay. Now, what you'll find is that it doesn't quite say the same thing, does it? Because sometimes the <coughs> translators of the Bible, they try to, to smooth out these difficulties of interpretation for us by adding a word here or there according to what they think is the right interpretation. Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's unhelpful. And it's unhelpful when, by doing so, they rule out um, other very possible interpretations. So the uh, most recent a translation of the NIV, not the one in our pew Bibles, the most recent translation uh, has added into the text at verse 19 the word after, so that it reads, after he was made alive, he went and preached. So you see what's happened there? They've changed it so it precludes option three, it precludes the possibility that Christ preached during the time of Noah. Um, so it's just helpful to be aware of that. I'm conscious that if you're reading on your phone, uh, you might be wondering uh, why that is the case. So, um, which one is it? Well, I, I think it was Luther that said that this is an absolutely beautiful passage and I don't understand it. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, the studies have, on it have progressed since Luther's day. Uh, what I think here is that the, the wisest approach is to, is to not be too dogmatic. Uh, personally, I lean, I think that option two or three are the more likely options. And I personally lean, lean towards option three. But I think that either are possible and I wouldn't want to be too dogmatic on that. But the good news here is that it's actually not vital because when we, when we think about, Luke's, uh, about Peter's purpose uh, in writing 1 Peter, it seems to me that either interpretation actually support uh, Peter's purpose. What is his purpose? Well, we live in an ungodly world where we do not fit in. And if we do not feel as if we are strangers, then we need to reevaluate our Christian lives because Paul says that all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not suffer physical persecution, but we may feel that we're isolated and ostracized and a little bit on the outer. Now, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but sometimes I hear people saying to me, you know, I don't know what's going on in this world. The world is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. We're obviously in the last days. Jesus is about to return. You've come across that? Well, when we think that way, I understand it. It's showing frustration in this world, but it's not showing a great understanding of history and our place in history. Because when we look at history... Uh, the world's always been rotten. <laughs> it's always been like this. 
In the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, how many people loved God and were saved? What does the passage say? Eight. Did you hear that right? Eight. In the whole world, eight. Now, how do you reckon Noah and his family felt? We feel isolated. We feel ostracized. We feel like a eight. And he's building a boat to make it worse. But Noah saw with his own eyes not just the judgment of God in the flood, but also, in verse 20, the salvation of God. I think we should read verse 20 again. In verse 20, uh, the second part of it, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Through water. Now, what does this mean? Uh, how does it? How can? How is it that Noah and his family were saved through water? I, I take it that it's saying that the water which destroyed was also uh, the agent which held up the ark and brought salvation. That is. We can say that Noah was saved through water. But then Peter goes on to say, and so are we. Uh, verse 20, second part of verse 20. Uh, so, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. <clears throat> as if the controversy about who the spirits in prison are, uh, if, as if that's not bad enough, he now goes and talks about water baptism saving you. <laughs> uh, you want to divide Christians? Talk about water baptism saving you. What's he saying here? Well, <clears throat> I found this interesting. Uh, you may not, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. But the word which is translated as symbolizes is the Greek word antitype. That's an actual Greek word, antitype. And in Peter's day, that was used to refer to the, the mold uh, which they used for making coins. So that the mold would, would have uh, its reversed image of the emperor and they would insert the, the blank metal disc uh, into the mould and then they'd strike it and create the coin with the, the perfect uh, positive uh, impression of, of the emperor. So, and that's the, they, they use the antitype to create the type. So the important thing is not the mould, is it? The important thing is what it produces, uh, the coin what it leads to. The salvation which Noah experienced through the waters is less important than that which, should, which, which is fulfilled in Christian baptism. Now, by baptism here, he's not talking about the dunking or the, <clears throat> the immersing or the splashing with water. Because he explains that, he says, not, not talking about the removal of dirt from our bodies, 
but rather the removal of the dirt from our hearts, from our conscience. For we know that Christ has died for sins once and for all to bring us to God. So that it is now with a conscience which has been cleansed that we can pledge ourselves to God, that we can pledge ourselves to living faithfully for him uh, in this world whilst we await the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we have no fear of judgment. Our conscience is cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no fear of judgment and neither should we have any fear of man. Now, uh, <clears throat> in our family in recent years, we've had two members of the family go through the whole HSC experience. So <clears throat> I've learnt a little bit about HSC processes. And students, when they're doing the HSC, often do so <clears throat> in order to gain a place at university. So added to the pressure of the actual study itself, all the stuff that they have to cram into their brains and understand, be able to reproduce, added to the pressure of the actual study themselves, itself, is the, is the anxiety and the stress of not knowing whether they will do well enough to get into the course they want to get into. I was talking to a HSC student last year. I don't remember who it was, actually. But um, <clears throat> I said, uh, how's all the study going for the HSC? How are you feeling about it? I'm feeling fine. Oh, that's good. Uh, you're working hard on it? Yeah, I'm working, working really hard on it. Uh, you're feeling anxious? No. The student had been offered early entry into university. You know what that means? Uh, <clears throat> there are some students who are so well-liked and well-respected that their principal gives them a recommendation and there are some universities who just want to grab such students who offer them and secure them a place in the course at university before they even sit for the exams. How about that? And you think to yourself, well, you can just slacken off. You know, don't worry about it. No, they, they, because of the nature of the kind of students they are, they, they're of good character, they, they work hard. They still work hard because they want to learn, they want to expand, they want to press, push themselves. They may even want to get into a different course. <laughs> but the, the fact that their place is secured means that they can do so without the anxiety, without the stress, without the worry about the end result. Now, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus is like that for us. He, it is the reason for our guarantee. Verse 21b. Peter says, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, and its submission to him 
are, and get this, angels. Perhaps that's a tick for option two. Angels are in submission to him. Moreover, it's not just angels who are in submission to him. Authorities are in submission to him. Remember chapter two, when we're to submit ourselves to all authorities, to governors, kings and rulers. All authorities are in submission to Jesus. And he goes on to say, and all powers, any power, uh, spiritual, natural power, is in submission to Jesus. All those who might actually have power over us, who may oppress us, who may, because we're Christians, are actually in submission to the resurrected Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says that when we suffer for doing God's will, don't be afraid. Do not fear, he says, what they fear. Do not be frightened. Because we have no need to fear. Because of Jesus, we have no reason to fear the judgment of God. The outcome has already been guaranteed. And neither should we fear men. When we are cursed because of Jesus, we don't lose our nerve. We don't go to pieces. We don't drop the ball. Rather, we respond like Jesus, with blessing, submitting ourselves, and even repaying evil with good, not because we have been people who have been beaten into submission, but rather because we can be godly. We can play the game of life rightly as God intended because the victory has already been won. The resurrection of Jesus gives us the confidence and the courage to press on being godly as strangers and aliens until the day of his return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, uh, which has completely paid the penalty for sin. Uh, we thank you, Father God, for his resurrection, which is the great victory that he has won. The death has been defeated, that all powers and authorities have been defeated. Father, we reflect on the example of Noah, and we see how it was that he uh, was so different from the world in which he lived. But he was faithful to you. He took your word uh, to heart and he built the ark. Father, we thank you for the example we've seen of judgment and salvation. But we pray, Lord God, that um, we would be people who keep on trusting in the death of Jesus on our behalf and that we are confident to live godly lives no matter what people might think of us because we've the victory's been won our place in heaven has been guaranteed by the victorious risen lord jesus christ we pray that we would uh, always keep our minds our hearts uh, set on his resurrection and live our lives accordingly we pray in his name amen <laughs>